Good day, folks. Welcome to Cracking the Code. This is Ryan Skinner. And today I've got a good friend of mine, Rich Winnett. Rich, welcome. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, he's a special guest. There are some people who come into your life, and um, I think there's probably about five people I can tell you that have had a huge impact, especially the last couple of years. Because when you're young and you're at the bottom and you're a kid, people want to help you. And when you're older and you're struggling, a lot of people either look at it like, yeah, that's their issues, let them suck it up, whatever it was. In the last year, I've had a real personal struggle going on um, outside of business, outside of addiction. And Rich was probably the first person who said to me, you know, Ryan, um, you deserve to have to feel respect in life. You deserve to be treated well, and you should be treating people well as well. And it was a game changer. It was the first time I felt like I had value. And I remember I called you from Bermuda crying. And, and you, you were so great about it. And you called and checked in on me. If I missed your call, you called again and you texted me. You really went above and beyond. And look, I just want to grab a little of your backstory because I think that's what makes you unique. Um, I could probably tell a story, but Rich, I know that you started off with an addiction issue. You went to jail sober, which doesn't happen. And you came out sober. And today, Rich runs the Kelly House in Wakefield. And that's important to me because I could name for you at least, I mean, I know there's a thousand people who've been there, got sober, but I could name for you 50 quality people that cross my path every day thanks to that place. And all those people sponsor people. So the, the, the tree, the family tree that's come out of there is, um, I would say, probably tens of thousands of people. And Rich, first of all, how do you name a Kelly House? What was it? Even? I named the Kelly House after my mom. That was my mom's maiden name. And she got sober in AA. And my life got much better because of it. And when I came time to, when I found the property and I looked at the property, that was a God shot. And the awnings actually had a K on it. It used to be called the Kirkwood Nursing Home. And I said, well, what are we going to name it? And it just came to me and I said, we'll name it the Kelly House. That's awesome. You know, I, I tell people, if you're going to go to a sober house, and if you're trying to get sober, you're trying to do it in your own house, on your own ways, um, eventually you'll end up somewhere, <laughs> whether it's jails, institutions, or death. But that's how it goes. But what a stop. It's in Wakefield. It's right on the lake. It's it's somewhere where people would pay just to get a room anyway. So if you get a room in recovery, and I, th I think I probably just nailed a big part of it is, Recovery. The one thing I've known from every guy that's gone to that house is you're required to be in recovery, not sober. You're required to live a life of recovery and be part of the community. So give me a little backstory about, you know, I know a little bit about when you drink in and you the jail and all that. I remember you saying it now, but I forgot your mom was sober in AA. So give me some backstory. Well, you know, getting back to the name of the house, um, when I was still active, my mom got sick. Back in 2001, uh, she had cancer. Um, I stopped drinking to help take care of her, you know, patting myself on the back. And um, as it was winding down and she was about to pass, I said, you know, what, what else can I do for, me, for you, Mom? And she said, I just want you to get sober. And, you know, anything, Mom, I'll do anything for you. And, um, and she passed a few days after that. So literally, on her deathbed, she asked me to get sober. And she passed away. And the day she passed away, I went down my buddy's bar, down Revere Beach, in a lot of pain. And the best those people could offer me, you know, no one gave me a hug. They just said, set him up. I didn't buy a drink. You know, I wanted to get numb. And I got numb. And I tell people, the, the problem with that is the next morning I woke up. Yeah. And she was still gone. And now 
I was still in pain, but now I had tremendous shame that the one thing my mom asked me for, I couldn't give her. And that was, a, and I drank for another three years after that. Wow. Well, it's, it's hard. Once the guilt and shame kick in, it's a self-perpetuating cycle of shit, as I like to say. Because once I feel bad about my behaviors, I got to numb again. Exactly. And, you know, I identify as a person in recovery, not an addict, addict or an alcoholic, because those are shame-based words. Yeah, yeah. And I saw a documentary five or six years ago called The Anonymous People, removing the shame and stigma from addiction. And it just hit a chord with me. I identified with that. And I've been, been identifying that way ever since. Sometimes the, I'm the only person at a meeting that identifies that way. I've had people walk up to me and say, what do you think, you're better than other people identifying that way? And I said, no, that's just what works for me. And my first sponsor gave me the gift of telling me that it's none of my business what other people think of me. And that was, a, as you said, that's a, that was a game changer for me because I spent my life obsessing about what one person or what anybody thought of me. Story of my life, you know that. And my insecurities drove me. And so, you know, I didn't know when I came in this time for recovery, I'd read things or hear things like freedom from the bondage of self or experiencing a new sense of freedom. What are they talking about? I, I had no idea. You know, I came in and out of me. I went to my first AA meeting in 1982. Wow. I was a freshman in college. You know, things were getting bad already. My roommates wanted to do an intervention. Um, and But I just went into the meeting. Wouldn't raise my hand, looked at the banner, saw the steps, said, oh, okay, I can do those on my own. Went home, read the book, didn't understand it. Literally didn't understand any part of it. Um, I often laugh because the thing that um, I read the the Jay Walker story, and and I threw the book across the room because I said this story is so ridiculous it insults my intelligence. You know, there's the ego that I didn't know I had because I was filled with so much shame and guilt that I I had no self esteem. So I said, how could I have an ego? if I have no self-esteem. And, you know, that's where it started, you know, back, um, good athlete, good student, popular. Doesn't matter though, doesn't fill the void. It doesn't fill the void. You know, I'm a, I'm a sex abuse survivor that never gets easier to share, but I feel it's important to share because that played a huge role in my using. You know, they say you're only as sick as your secrets, well, that was my one, and it was a big one. And I didn't tell anyone, and I carried that pain with me every day. And then two friends in the eighth grade, uh, but just before my freshman year, uh, said, we're going down, down the beach drinking. Do you wanna come? Sure. And as soon as I had that in me, literally, I could feel it in me. I felt that warm glow, and I didn't feel the pain and I didn't feel the way I, I felt even 15 minutes earlier. And I said, I've found the solution. And it never really got any better than that time down Revere Beach. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I remember when I was younger, I had an uncle who had done some stuff to me. And when he died, he died when I was in second grade. And I didn't ever want to drink because he was an alcoholic. 
And the sad part was he was also gay. And I associate gay people with people that would hurt kids. It wasn't until I was in high school that I had a, had a few gay friends. I was like, whoa, whoa, there's clearly a difference between gay and a, and a child abuser. And I said, I never drink because I never want to be an asshole like you. And I will tell you, when I first drank, I knew, even in college, I, I would not drink because I knew if I drank on Thursday, I didn't know when it ended. And after college, I moved back with my parents for a year. My father said, you stay sober. I built a business. I bought a house and I moved in with me. And then the problem came back. Uh, I think what's incredible about your story is you had a lot of success. I had success, but when the opioids ended, I went off a cliff. You didn't necessarily, you had a lot of professional success. And, and for you, I mean, I, what, what it means a lot to me is when you opened this, the Kelly house, it was because, for, not because you needed the money, because you and your wife have been very successful. Your wife has a great job. You had a great job. It was a passion project. And I think that's why certain things work. Um, that's why I believe my coaching and speaking business took off was because I, I love it. I don't necessarily need the business. I just enjoy being part of something that's bigger than me because I know I'm not that unique. And what you do every day, I mean, driving these guys, most owners of sober houses, they walk in once a week, they get their check from the house guy and you drive guys to jail, I mean, not jail, excuse me, but sometimes jail. You drive them to courthouses, you drive them to doctor's appointments. I mean, you're like a well-dressed driver, an Uber, a nice Uber, <laughs> you know, without getting paid also. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. So when did you, I know you got sober years later, but you've been sober, what, almost 20 years, uh, 17 eight, years? 18 and a half years. 18 years, I thought it was 17. Um, sobriety date is December 10th, 2004. Um, I had a successful career in sales. Um, spent, you know, started off in trade shows, which, you know, I gravitated towards the, you know, that lifestyle, you know, um, the you're selling the pre-show and then the show happens and you're there and it's a it's one big party you're taking clients out and you know that suited me just fine you know and and my I'm a type A personality so there's rankings and you know sales I just fed into that and you know I did well there were Although, I, you know, there were, I'd come into the office, there'd always be ranking whatever company I worked for, whether it was, you know, IBM or Oracle or, or you know, Comdex selling the trade show, you know. So I'd look on the wall, I'd see where I was ranked. It was always in the, in the top. But yet, that's not how I felt. I get you know, it. I felt like a fraud. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to get fired. I felt that way every day. I'm going to get found out. It's funny you said that last year. So the last couple of years, I've had tremendous numbers at work. And I don't go to the award ceremony because I, I don't feel almost worthy. And this year was in Aruba. And the guys that text me the award, the, the, the billboard thing that comes out with my name. Because, you know, they're like, Ryan, you're doing crazy business. And I looked down and I wrote back, thanks. And I'm thinking, I, I didn't even feel worthy to show up. I haven't showed up to one award ceremony in five years. And I'm always in the top two or three. Um, and I can relate because I always felt like a fraud. It's not until I finally embraced who I was and clients, like people will come in, they, I'll be dressed like this to see clients and I don't, I don't hide it. Yeah. I was a heroin addict. Yeah. Things got really bad, but this is who I am. I, that a lot of that came from you, which was a big reason. Like they were guys, you, Chuck, Vin, Piero, and Billy were guys that walked with me and Bobby Rufo would say to me, Ryan, I remember Bobby one time went to bring me food. I was in a cell. I said, don't, he goes, I go, don't even look at me. I'm a junkie. He was this one perfect person. We crucified him. You guys were the ones that taught me, hey, you're not that person today. And that's a hard thing. I mean, I, I'm speaking, especially where I'm going through some stuff right now. I feel like I'm letting my daughters down. My parents are disgusted about it. But the one thing my mother says, she goes, you know, I know you're a sober father. And that's that makes me proud. 
but boy, everything else, she's just rolling her eyes. My, my parents don't, and I'm probably like your mother, my mother doesn't care what I make, what I drive. She's not impressed by the BS. She was a housekeeper. And she says, I'm impressed by how you treat people. You're generous, but I don't give a damn what's on your paycheck, right? You know, I offered to pay off her house. She goes, don't insult me. I'm a grown woman. I was like, all right, I thought I was doing a nice gesture. You know, because I learned from guys like you that lost him on and And, you know, the good thing is you did stay so while she was going through that. You were present for it. Whether whether you could hold on to it or not, You that's a gift you did give her. And she saw you that way. And now, I mean, she must look down at you and be pretty damn proud. I, I believe that today. I didn't believe that for the longest time until I came into recovery. Um, and I found a sponsor. He found me. That, that, is that Pico? That, yeah. Okay. And... You know, I actually said to him, you know, we all think we're unique. And I said, uh, Pico, we, we can't do these steps. And he said, really? I always thought I had an angle or an answer. And I, he said, why not? I said, well, you know, step nine, making amends. I said, the two people I hurt the most, my mother and my grandmother, they're both past. I can't make amends to them. So, so we can't do this. And he said, well, I'm going to teach you a concept called the living amends. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's you living sober every day is making a living amends to your mom and your grandmother and, and anyone else that you've hurt. And thankfully, that resonated with me. And so I've been able to do that and know and feel that my mother is proud of me, would be proud of me. But also what Pico said to me once, he said, it's not about who you were, it's about who you are today. And that stuck with me because we can't, we can't undo anything we've done in the past. And we've, so done, we've done shameful things. And he said, you wanna, you wanna feel more, uh, you wanna feel less shame? Don't do shameful acts. You wanna yeah. feel more self-esteem? Do esteemable acts. Billy always said that to me and because I can't pronounce the word. He'd be like, estimable. I mean, yeah. I couldn't get the word out. I go, I get it though. The moral of the story is don't be an ass. But you, it's true. If you were, you live the right way. I mean, I just say yes to anything. Somebody called me this morning, said, can I get a ride to a meeting? I said, sure. I'm dropping my daughter at her little autistic camp at school. I will pick you up. I'll go to the meeting. He said, well, you don't have to. I said, I, I said, sure. And at this point, the answer is just yes. Because for so long it would be like, oh, that's out of my way. Oh, this kid's a pain in the ass. Oh, I'm gonna have to, he's got one stopping at coffee. I don't think so. I'd have 50 reasons. And then I realized one day, I'm like, you know, if I could just be a service to somebody other than Ryan, my life, I mean, even right now with some of the stuff going on at home, my wife and I are going through kind of a challenging time, obviously. And, uh, but we have a friendship and a mutual respect. And that's a gift. And I got that, you gave me that that day because I was willing to fire back sometimes with my mouth could be sharp. And you said to me, Ryan, you don't have to be treated a certain way and you don't treat people a certain way and you will be okay. And in the last couple of months, my life feels like I'm drinking battery acid, chewing glass, but you know what? I'm okay. And okay is the ball sometimes. You know, when you go through a tough time, to be okay, to know that you can walk with your shoulders back and be confident, service your clients, be there for your kids, be a part of a 12-step program that we are, that's a gift. And I want to touch on one other thing. You, I'm a big believer in affirmations, how you speak to yourself. When I first heard you say the recovery thing in a meeting, I almost copied it right away. And I go, ah, I look a little weird if I just jump on it. I, I, excuse my language, I fucking love it. I think it's great to hear somebody talk about us in a way, because I always say, Ryan, alcoholic addicts. And I won't lie to you, the second the addict pot comes out, that pot of my stomach, that, yeah, I was a heroin addict. And I'll say it now, today I went to that meeting, there was some young kids there, and I said, yeah, I'm Ryan. 
I'm an alcoholic. I'm very grateful. I'll also be a recovered heroin addict because there's young kids there I know have that problem and I'm willing to share it if I can help somebody. But when I just say that at a random meeting, alcoholic addict, when that addict pot comes out, it just kind of like lowers my shoulders a little, you know? So that's something I'm going to work on because um, you learn from other people. I learn a lot from you. And with Billy moving, I'll tell you, I'm going to, I said to Billy, I'm going to just jump on Rich's pocket between him and Billy J. I'm just, I'm scared to death because not because I think I'll go out, but because the pain of not having somebody. But you're one of those guys, if I call you at 9, 10, 11, I mean, every time I've called you so late, not even knowing, just by accident, and you, know, you just answer or you call right back. And your wife's a saint. I mean, honestly, his wife's one of, she's in financial services. She's had tremendous success, just a rock star in the business. This project, I mean, with the Kelly House, she's a team sport player because your your whole world is wrapped up in being of service to people. And I'm sure she gets annoyed and pissed off as that, but man, she co-signs it. Yes, she does. And she deserves and a lot it, of credit it, for that. The Kelly House would not exist if it weren't for my wife. Yeah, and she deserves a lot of credit for it because for somebody who's not an addict or an alcoholic to do that, it's easy for us. We've lived it. Somebody like that, they're just a good person. You know, I can't relate to that. That's a level of selflessness I wouldn't understand. Nor do I try. So, you know, you also still play baseball at a pretty competitive level. How was the game last night? I played last night. It was uh, it was hot. Yeah. I, mean, I was tired because we had I had a trying day yesterday. and But once I get there, you know, it's one of those things that um, throughout my life, that's been one of my escapes um, where I find... Uh, find relief. Um, something with the the structure of the game, you know, I would give it my all. And for that time I'm out there, you know, no other problems exist. And, you know, uh, growing up, I was never a, a, uh, a good loser, but I, can't I could accept, you know, you give it your total effort, you might not win. You know, I could accept that. That's different it's, than being a loser. Yes. Get defeated sometimes, which we all do. Right. That's part of life. A loser is when you throw it in bat right. down, yep. you F this, yep. F that. And, you know, and so, you know, I take pride in my effort. Um, it's funny. The first year I got sober, I was playing on, in a league in Boston. And the guys, I didn't say anything to them that I was sober. and um, But we used to drink a lot after the games and... Three games into the season, they couldn't figure out why there was so much beer left over. And I, I waited three games, and finally I said, guys, um, I'm not drinking, and that's why there's so many left over. And they said, no, there's, there's too many to be left. <laughs> and I explained what I was, what I was drinking, you know, and, and the rate, pace, and, and they couldn't believe it. But I had one of my best years ever, the first year I got sober, and... You know, I used to have a lot of fear playing, you know, and you can't play with fear. You know, you need confidence, any sport you play. Um, if you're filled with self-doubt, you're, you know, you've got one strike. Especially as a pitcher. You're a pitcher also, and right? And pitch. Yeah. yeah, that's going to be hard. You have to say, you know, I'm confident to do this. You know, back to my, you know, my first job in, in recovery was for a software company in downtown Boston. And they said to me, you have to do your own demos. And I was filled with fear. I had never had to do that before. I always had a software engineer to do that. This was a smaller company. I called my sponsor up and I said, Pico, I, I, I'm going to quit tomorrow. Said, Why? He said, because they're telling me I have to do my own demos and, and I don't know how to do that. He said, well, have you tried? I said, no. He said, well, why don't you try first 
and see what happens. That's and, kind of funny. you know, simple things. Nothing's, you know, it's not rocket science. It's nothing earth shattering. It's a lot of simple little things. So I did it. I got fairly proficient at it. And I was the number two salesperson in the company. And, and that's the most proud I've ever been, you know, prior to opening the Kelly House in a job. And I've made more money in other companies. But that was something where I walked through the fear yeah. in, in my career, uh, really for the first time. And, you know, based on getting a sponsor and, and listening to the suggestions and trusting him. And just saying, okay, I'm going to, instead of projecting in the negative, which I had done my whole life, I'm going to let things play themselves out. Walking through the fear, I think people, normal people have fear. You know, Dino always says, we have it in neon. Um, When I got out of jail, I want to get back in the financial service business. People aren't sending you referrals after being off the grid for three years, being in prison, being a heroin addict. So somebody said, why don't you do seminars? I said, well, you know, I'm going to be honest. I, I speak poorly. I mumble and I don't pronounce my R's. It's probably not a good, and I speak really fast. Guys, if you get a good energy, try it. The first one cost me 6800 I, I made 6300 so I lost 500 bucks. After that, um, it's never been the same. You know, we're always, for a single producer shop, we're always number one or two in the country at what we do. And it comes from that. I realize now that if you have faith and you give it to God, you really try to be a service. That's the trick. I, I mean, think of how many sober houses open up and fail or that, you know, people get in trouble because they're doing shady things with insurance. But if you try to be a service, you get out of bed and you just say, God, help me out here. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll try. And I remember I used to give a, I used to give a workshop every day to a bulldog. I used to have to practice every day. I'd give it to my bulldog. And then when I did, it, I was like, geez, I can do this. And now that's like the baseline of my life. I think it's funny how, we walked through fear, and I, I can't imagine there had to be some fear open in the Kelly House because that's a big venture. You know, there should have been, and I had I had reservations, and it was something I had never done before. But I just had I had faith that it was going to be all right. I, not that it would be a a, a great success, but Which I, it, is. it would be all right. And I I was determined. I had seen what other sober houses were doing. And I said, I'm going to do it a certain way. I'm going to do it different. And I'm either going to succeed or fail doing it that way. And, but I love, you mentioned about, you know, thinking of others and service for others. I spent most of my life, and I wasn't brought up this way. I spent most of my life thinking that if I did what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, that would bring me happiness. Yeah, I know that feeling. And I made a lot of money and went places and did things and but it brought me no happiness and no joy it, it, incredible loneliness and then when I came into recovery and I w- this was introduced to me about thinking of others in recovery when you start to get out of that selfish self-centered mindset which we're all in we all share as people with addiction you start to find that you're you have more acceptance. You're more content. And I couldn't spell calm when I came into recovery. <laughs> you know, and it... Did you see me have a look calm in early recovery? <laughs> it was off the wall like a ping pong ball. You know, and my wife, you know, she's a business person. She loves me, respects me. She said it was a big, you know, nobody was going around spending a million dollars on a sober house. No. Um, we did that. And she said, I'll, I'm going to give you six months to make this work. And I said, that's fair. And if not, we're going to turn it into commercial office space on the lake. 
it, you know, that's yeah, that a, been nice too. That's a, no, that's a no brainer. I think I'd like that too. <laughs> and so the first month we started off and I think I had five people in the house. We had 28 beds, but five people in the house and you know, my, my oil bill was $3,600 for the month. Um, we're, we're going south fast. You know, it's not working out. Second month, maybe a few more guys. Some are paying, some aren't paying. Um, the third That's month, always nice if they the, don't pay. <laughs> the third month came around, and I was going to a Saturday morning meeting in Boston, the Serenity meeting at the uh, Lindemann Center. And a friend of mine in a plaid shirt and corduroys, didn't, he looked like he needed a few bucks. He said to me, how's the house going, Rich? The old me would have said, oh, of course, it, it's killing it, doing great. I just, this was after the meeting. I got honest. I was taught to, to get honest in recovery. I said, Frank, it's not going well. Uh, and I just talked maybe for five or 10 minutes. And I share with people on the drive back to Wakefield, the relief I felt just from sharing that, lessening that burden, yeah. you know, with someone else, um, didn't know if you know what would what was going to happen tomorrow three days later that gentleman sent me a check for several thousand dollars really didn't ask him for that no and i called him up and i said frank i'm not a, a 501c3 you can't write this off on your taxes and he just said will that help and I, I was crying as I called him because, wow. you know, it was, it was overwhelming and, and humbling. And that was the difference, I think, between us making it through the tough spot and getting over the hump. And then things started to get rolling and we haven't looked back since. But it's things like that. Um, you know, some people call it God shots. It's just... Uh, my Pico used to say to me, you know, are you intent? Are your intentions pure? You know, check your motives. Yeah, that, for intentions for guys like us, that's everything. Because early on, my intentions were I wanted I didn't want to be broke anymore. I wanted girls to like me. I want to get in better shape. I wanted this. I wanted that. And I got some of those things. And boy, what a, you know, I always say, God, you know what God did for me? He gave me everything I wanted to teach me a lesson. I, I had a big house. I'd be sitting there alone with no with plenty of money, but nobody close to me. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I called you and I said, I pulled up to this house and a car I always wanted, a house I always wanted. I got two kids and a wife inside. Why is it enough? Like now what? Intentions are everything. When you want those things for the right reasons, like um, when you want to help people or, and it doesn't have to be professionally, it doesn't have to be, well, you just want to be, make somebody's day a little better than it would be. You know, like I try to give two compliments a week now and I try to do it and walk away before they can even say thank you. So I went up to an older woman today and I said, you have really nice shoes. You look great. And I just walked out. I didn't wait for her to say thank you because that's my self-seeking side. And there was a guy who sat next to me in a meeting and he had a tattoo on his arm. And I'm like, well, that's a nice looking tattoo. It's not something I would have got. But you know what it was? It was nicely done. And I thought, you know, if I can just give somebody something without being so self-seeking. I try to add these little things in because I'm so naturally I'm self-seeking. I'm selfish. You know. You know, I try to, like when I go to meetings, I don't sit next to girls. I don't sit next to young girls. I usually go to men's meetings because I have no business being floating around with a bunch of girls. I, girls I have in the program that I know are friends because you just kind of develop brothers and sisters. The bonds you make, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. And it all starts with intentions and being of service. If you're nice to people and you intend to be nice, you're not trying to get anything creepy or anything wrong out of it, life goes pretty good. 
whenever the other side of Ryan comes out, I get what I want usually or what I think I want. I remember about 10 years ago, I wanted to date this girl. God, it worked itself out. I don't think God really wanted it, but I forced the issue, even though God gave me a bunch of roadblock signs saying, don't do it, don't do it. And I did it. And I can assure you, I paid a heavy spiritual price for it, as did she. And that's what I'm learning as I get older is every time, if I hurt somebody else, I'm hurting me too. But I'm not just hurting me. I, you, there is somebody else. There's always another victim. And I think what I'm learning from some of you guys, more around you guys is, like, how do you act? Like, how, how uh, I don't want to use the name of the program, but how does a 12-step guy act? You know, Armin always says. Mm -hmm. some and some days I am. I'm a shining example of the program. I'm exactly what you'd want. Like, hey, my kid got sober. That's it. There's other days I'm just getting staying sober. And, and it's amazing to me how that works. And, and I learned it from you guys. I mean, you're a great example. What you're doing over there at the house is it's helping tons of guys. And, and I see it. And it helps me because when I went through a tough time, you know, one of these guys helped me. And it just trickled down. It's kind of like, you remember the name Dick Marquardt? Mm -hmm. there's, there are those, there's, you two are the only two that I can say that I know that there's lineage that will be last hundreds of years. Legacy is what you leave behind for money. You don't have to have goddamn kids, a dog, a, a yacht, a house. It's, it's the impact you have on people asking for nothing in return. And, um, and that's what you've done. So I tell the guys, mentioning material things, and, and I said, you know, I, I went out and bought a uh, Mercedes convertible, and I used to cruise Newbury Street to pick up women. And I met some women that way. I said, but what I didn't realize, you know, getting what you think you want, those were never the women that you could share that you're having a bad day. Exactly. Because they didn't sign up for that. No, they, they want the good times. They and, don't want the tough things. You know, and I'm ashamed to admit today that some of those women I didn't even like. But I liked when we walked into a restaurant, men would turn their heads, see her, and then look at me. Yeah, and I got some, something out of that. That's when I was still active. And, and I tell people that, you know, I was told to stay out of relationships and early recovery and focus on myself. And we only have so much focus and relationships take away from that. And, and I did that. I trusted that because I was desperate and willing to do anything. And I used to tell people I specialized in train wrecks. And most of those women were. But guess what? I was a train what wreck also. Level. And <laughs> I was missing that part. And I noticed that when I started to get back into the dip my toe in the, in the, in the dating pool, that one... I used to be attracted to, to chaotic and drama and needy women, and now I could recognize it and stay away from it. That's yeah, funny because that's not, I mean, Joanne is a very oh, self-made, well, strong woman. Absolutely. But a really nice, I mean, I've met her a bunch of times yeah. through you, a really nice to see a person, but she she didn't need you. You guys found each other. Absolutely. You know, which is a beautiful thing because that's what you want. You want a partner, not a project. Absolutely. And I could never... I wondered why things didn't work out. It was always because I'd find women that were incredibly needy, like needed a whole bunch of help, whether it was financial or otherwise. And I would do that, right? I'd come in on my horse, my cape, try and fix everything, but I'm paying a price. And we do it for a while, but there's only so long we can do it. And then you build a little resentment on the side. Yeah, and you I'm feel carrying this, I'm carrying that. that, yeah. I bought a, a woman a minivan because she had four boys. like two months into the relationship. One that's not rational. And, and friends <laughs> of mine were saying, what's, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, what are you, I, I'm just doing, just, a good guy. just trying to help. I know. But I wasn't helping me. But I wasn't factoring me into the equation. 
Yeah, I, I and, remember you giving me one good piece of advice. Like you said, when the dust settles with my personal life, you and Chuck gave this advice too. I'm gonna date my daughters. For the next year, I'm gonna take my daughters to get the nails out to a restaurant. And when I don't have them, I will work on recovery and business, and then I'll be with my kids. And then at some other point in life, wherever God takes me, but I never realized, I always thought, like I used to call it replacement therapy. You, you have an issue with one girl, okay, I'll get another girl on my arm. In fact, my lawyer said to me at one point, he goes, the guy who handles my corporate stuff, he says, remember the next time you go through a tough time in life, don't just throw another girl on your arm. And I remember that was years ago. And the truth is, I don't live that way anymore. Like I'm, a, I'm lucky enough to be a different person. And it's all because of people like you guys that came before me. If I don't get advice and feedback from you guys, I'm left in my own head. And honestly, somebody said it once that I can define this perfectly. If you're going up in my head, you need a, a, a shotgun and a flashlight. And even that is scary. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm really grateful to have you in my life. You know, you still haven't taken me golf, by the way. I don't suck as bad anymore. I'm not playing again this year. And I guess apparently without getting angry and hitting the clubs or breaking them, I'm going to buy a new club on one club from years ago. That's one of my serenity places. I go out there and it doesn't, I used to, there was a day where I used to toss clubs. And now I go out there and I actually enjoy being outside. I always walk. I don't take a cart. And I, I go at a, a good pace. Can I ask you a question? Do you sure. drag the clubs at least? Or do you yeah, carry them? Yeah, okay. no, no. All right, I, I can do yeah, that. I can I do that. <laughs> and uh, I just enjoy it. And it's it's a gift. And it wasn't before. It was all about the score yeah. and the, you know, the country and club hit, that you're and at. Hitting every, you're shot, every, every shot perfect. I heard you're really which, good from a number of guys. doesn't happen. And, you know, so now I appreciate it. And I, I, I get out with people of different, some people are better, some people are worse. Always in golf, there are people gonna gonna be better and, and worse than you. But I just enjoy. It's a nice place to get out there and you have conversations with people, and you're away and, and especially with people in recovery that you can enjoy. You know, living life. I didn't get sober to spend it in church basements. Yeah. You know, I got sober to live life and, and go places. And when I go to Maui every year, yeah, I was just gonna say you go to Hawaii almost every year, right? Every year, and there's a seven a.m. meeting that I go to. Cool. And I walk in there and I say aloha and they, the whole room knows me and I know everyone in there and I've developed relationships. It's nice. And and that's and I it's wherever I go, I find a meeting because I, I bring me with me. Yeah. And you know, if <laughs> I, I went that. if I went for two weeks without a meeting, I'd start spending too much time in my head. When I go to a Ruber, I always go to I have the same meeting. Everyone knows me. I walk in, it's like, hey Ryan, how you doing? It's Boston Ryan. There's comfort in that. You Absolutely. Know, it's it's similar me? to, you know, people have issues with the higher power in AA or any 12-step program. And they think, oh, you're weak if you have a higher power. Uh, you know, I'm not going to judge anyone who has that opinion. But for me, I get comfort from my higher power. I get strength. So that's what works for me. It's almost like how I identify as a person in recovery. Yeah. That works for me. My I don't know any other way to do me. it. Right. The I, last, like, for a long period of time, I was trying to do it on my own. I wasn't even sure I even believed in God anymore. And then, like I said, you know, I got to double down. And I had a group of guys that I hang out with consistently. I said, guys, I'm, I'm faking it right now with the God thing. I don't feel connected. I feel off. I'm just seeing all the stuff because I know the lingo. And they were like, we're going to pray for you. We'll stop praying. And then out of the blue, like a tidal wave, it hit me. And the last, like, five, six months has been fire. It's been awesome. And one of my close friends, um, you ever hear Father Mario? Priest from St. Yes, Pat's. yes. And I mean, he was a Navy SEAL. He's a priest. Yep. Um, but he, he's dying of pancreatic cancer now. And um, 
I'm able to reach out to him. I consistently send him cards. Like last week was from Hulk Hogan. It said, hey, my Hulkamaniac, when you get out of the hospital, we'll shave each other's back and wrestle. Love Hulk Hogan. <laughs> he calls me up. He says, it's got to be you. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Then there was Dolly Parton. I won't say exactly what I said on it, but it was something about a woman's boobs and him. And, but Rich, I'm psyched to have you on today. Honestly, thank you so much for your time. Um, what's the website for the Kelly House? Just It's kellysoberhouse.com. I mean, I know you don't really need more business, but there are people out there who need help. And, and I will say this, you know, the, I always say the best thing to do is go to another sober house first because then you'll appreciate it. Well, that's that's what it is. I never knew. But then I walked in there and I was like, Jesus, these people go, yeah. I mean, I was standing up doing dishes at the at the freaking Hope House and, and it was like a factory of people. And before that, I was in a court alternative program, which was not nice. So um, God willing, I never have to go that route again. But if I do, you'll see me on your front lawn. <laughs> Rich, thanks so much, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right.